Welcome to the 17th episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. Woohoo, exciting. Yeah, <laughs> very exciting. I'm Audrey Waters. I'm Ken Lane. And wow, we have we have managed throughout the last I don't know, a couple of months of being definitely a rather upended and um challenging time with a different sort of travel than we expected or than we're used to. We've managed to record a podcast every weekend. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we've tried to do podcasts before kind of lightly and they never really stick. And I didn't have much hope um, that this one was going to continue when our summer or spring was um, derailed as it was. And, and, but I think it's, uh, for me, it's become an important lifeline to te- the, the world of tech. And, um, but uh, it's been good. So um, as of this week, you sort of um, returned with a, a public announcement that you're sort of back as the API evangelist. Yeah, kind of putting the finishing touches on the drone recovery project, which I guess kicked off like the weekend of May 13th, so second weekend in May. And now um, we're kind of getting back to normal. Uh, The kids getting a place in Portland and and we're back in L.A. for a little bit. We're we're still planning on hitting the road here. Um, You have a class to teach, I think, and then... We're going to uh, do a couple more trips, and there's going to be some more drone activity, I'm sure, in there. But um, as far as the project's concerned, um, you know, we're kind of shifting into the next gear, and I'm back doing some API evangelist work. Um, and I would, I have to say, sort of um, back with a vengeance, right? Um, I noticed the RSS feed. You didn't just sort of, like, return and say, hey, I'm back, but you returned with, like, a slew of, um, you know, 20, 20, 30, 80 blog posts. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, that was, I haven't written this post actually for Ken Lane. I've written one on API Evangelist and one for, on drone recovery, but like one from my personal standpoint of not a whole lot of realization came out of the summer for me. You know, I didn't have any magical like, oh, here's the answer to technology, all our technology was or anything, but um, I did realize how important it was or is to me to write and um, be be tuned into what's going on. Although I'm I'm adjusting that um, what that means to be tuned in, but um, writing is is very therapeutical for me, and it, it was very painful to spend almost three months not writing. So um, it, it felt good to come back and and crap, carve up some pieces. So of the stories that you published this week, were there any that you wanted um, to talk about? Yeah, I mean, so my writing is very much still rooted in what I've been doing for the last three months with uh, with drones. And um, I'm super stoked that coming back online, you know, there's a wealth of drone-related information and, and stories and companies and technology for me to uh cut my 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 teeth in on as far as you know hey i'm back and i'm still thinking about what you know what what's possible with drones but really one of them was um you know in my last couple weeks out out as doing the drone recovery stuff i was i was hitting more and more friction when it came to flying the drone and part of it was because i was 
um, in eastern Oregon, um, and I was in places where there had been recently forest fires, and it was approaching forest fire season, peak forest fire season, and um, there's a huge problem with dumbasses out there flying their drones around forest fires, and when that happens, they have to shut down their 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 air operations, and um, really impacts what's going on. So it's it's definitely the front line of of the the drone uh, kind of conversation and setting the tone when it comes to regulation, both at the local, regional, and, and federal level. And one of the stories is, um, that came out in the last couple of weeks was how um, DJI, which is the, the drone that I use, I have a Phantom 3 Pro, and it um, uses for the uh, application that you um, fly your drone with, it's, a, it's just an iPad app or an iPhone app, um, it uses a mapping software from a company called AirMap, which gets updates from the Department of Interior um, via there's a, a site you can go to that has uh, updates about where where you should fly, where you can fly, and where you can't fly. So it's FAA, um, and it's it's targeting all aircraft, but they can pull that information, apply it to the drone world because you can't be flying an, an aircraft around a forest fire. You can't be flying a drone around a forest fire. Right. I mean, just to clarify, um, the the information was Department of Interior information about forest fires, right? So they were sort of merging that with the FAA rules about where you can, uh, can and can't fly. Well, correct? it's a general feed at FAA about... Uh, where you can fly and where you can't fly. And some of them are more permanent, some are more ephemeral. Like there was one from last week that in, in downtown Philadelphia that was simply VIP in area, no flying. So we can only assume who that VIP was in Philadelphia last week. But basically you can't fly anywhere near the president and is going to be. So that shows up on the list. It shows up in your I, your DJI drone um, map and if you're unfamiliar with how the drones work, when you fire them up, it goes through a whole list of checks and balances about, you know, is the battery there? Is it, you know, can it fly? Is it Does it have propellers? All of that. It goes through this whole checklist, and one of them is, you know, safe flight conditions. And so your software controls whether you can take off or not, and it'll tell you that you're in a fire zone, you're near an airport, you're near a nuclear power plant, and um, you can override it, but it, it, it still... Um, prevents you from flying and um, and being able to take off. So that real-time data feed, you know, I, I started looking at it and seeing that, that AirMap was the provider of the mapping solution. They're getting the feed from um, FAA. and um, But then as I was looking at that information, it, it, it brought up a second tier to the story, which um, from an API vantage point is, is very interesting to me because that's, you know, that's FAA, government open data, driving drones, um, how uh, real-time decisions are made around flying drones using open data and, and mapping-related data. Um, but the, there was another story about the Department of Interior and, and um, how they're using drones for their fleets. So they have uh, uh, fleets drones out in operations doing various things that would be underneath the Department of Interior, forest service, agriculture, and stuff like that. And they there was a a memo circulated that they were saying ground your DJI drone fleets. If you're using DJI, stop using them because basically you're uploading mapping and valuable government assets to 
Chinese servers because DGI is a Chinese company. And so um, that, that memo got pulled back, I guess, and I'm still doing the research on what it all means. But for me, like the, coming out of the woods, you know, having drones be this significant part of what I'm doing and kind of how I'm thinking to have it get data real time via APIs and scraping and feeds, which is very interesting to me. But then also, you know, this as a as a kind of politics of APIs, things that, that our government's having to think about what uh, equipment and what drones or Internet of Things devices they're using because um, because of of data concerns. So fascinating stuff. So this is I mean, this ties in a little bit to what uh, I mean, not directly, but sort of tangentially, or not even tangentially, it ties into what we were talking about last week with some of the questions around um, cyber warfare and the WikiLeaks um, release of hacked DNC emails and the role of governments, our own as well as foreign governments, in sort of thinking about what, how is information, how is information warfare, um, how is warfare going to be fought in the future. So this is, I mean, I think it's a really interesting case about how we're sort of moving forward. And I've seen a lot of stories in the last week or so with people sort of complaining about FAA regulations as perhaps standing in the way of, quote, innovation around around drones and sort of how, how does the FAA plan to encourage, quote, innovation with drones, um, but also keep these other factors in mind. And this, and to me, I feel like one of the missing pieces in a lot of these conversations has been this, this sort of geopolitics of all of this. I mean, I think we're moving forward in a lot of ways without really thinking about security. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, this drones for me, uh, kind of are that represent this cross section of technology that, um, it's open data, like I said. It's it's APIs and how APIs are driving the mapping data in these drones, and and how APIs are delivering the weather related information, um, and all of that's feeding that. But it's um, the security of it, like you know, we we're talking about last week, is you know we're uploading so much data to um, servers that we're not even aware of it sometimes, you know, most of the time, I would say as, a, as an individual. And, and, and a lot of people love to tell you and I, cause we have this whole kind of angle to our world. That's very, what we consider to be reclaim oriented, meaning as an individual, I want m- a lot of my data, um, from Facebook, from, from Instagram, from all these places, as much of it as possible to live on my servers. And we get a lot of pushback from people who are like, oh, the average person's never going to give a shit about any of this. You guys are just, you know, preaching some some crazy, uh, you know, hippie, whatever fantasy. And, and okay, whatever, but we... we we convert people. We get people who who open their eyes to what's going on underneath the hood of our mobile phones and internet. And then you elevate this to this level, which is corporate, you know, or um, election related. So DNC, which is both a, a corporate entity and and politically, re- uh, you know, uh, focused. But how do they handle their security? Where are they storing their data? Where are they storing emails? Um, when this stuff isn't secure, it can be weaponized pretty quickly, put back out onto channels using APIs, social media, Twitter, Facebook, all of these. Um, and then all the way up to this level that I just talked about with the Department of Interior, willingly <laughs> uploading um, 
terabytes of mapping data of government properties and institutions and and vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities right. up directly to Chinese servers. Thank you very much. You know, it's like and so there's so many layers of this that I find fascinating. And then all the way to you know, I've been pushing forward with stories. I came across a drone this week that um, its capabilities was to fly and sniff out Wi-Fi hotspots and that were vulnerable and crack them and then use so so using a drone as a way of penetrating networks but both physically and virtually um and so pushing it into whole new territories that I just think are infinitely fascinating. Well this is one of the themes I think that you have taught touched on quite often with your drone stuff is it the drone does live at this really interesting convergence of the virtual and the physical, right? But it also lives at this really interesting um, convergence of the commercial and the military, right? So there's a couple of, I mean, I think that there's lots of pretty interesting ways in which the drone, the drone is a is a weapon of war, but now we're also being told that the drone is a hobbyist device. Um, but And I think that this connection between the virtual and the digital is really interesting because so many people, I think, have really embraced what I would have called sort of early proclamations about cyberspace, a sort of cyberspace being global, sort of cosmopolitan, international, but when really we're seeing it break down into sort of national levels. Like it really does matter, and it matters, um, you know, again, people might push back on our work and say, Average folks don't care, but I think many people do, depending on where you live. I mean, there are very strict rules, for example, in Canada about um, data um, data not being housed on servers on U.S. soil. Similarly, there are concerns in, in European countries as well about what happens to data on you in servers on US soil. So we talk about it being quote in the cloud as though it's in sort of the sky like in the sort of sky in like international waters, right? That the cloud is somehow this international free space in which there aren't nation states. But of course that's not that's not true. These these the servers um, and the cloud is just a server are located, they do have a physical properties. They do have a materiality to them. They are under national, they do fall under the jurisdiction of, of the countries in which they're located. And so we don't have this sort of pure essence of virtuality that I think some people talk about, talk about these technologies as though we do. Well, when you fly the DJI drone, I'm super fascinated by its it it as a data gathering um, tool. You know, it's it's very easy to just look at the camera and go, oh, it's taking a 4K video of this landscape, this park, this wherever I'm flying it. But then it's also tracking longitude and latitude, elevation, it's tracking direction. It's tracking a whole bunch of other data, and all of this is is available in a neat little KML map that um, allows me to uh, replay that, look at that. It's all stored up in the cloud. It's all available across trips, across drones, because um, I actually was able to get uh, the the a part of the flight log data from a crash, you know, because of this. Um, so it's 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 magically up there in the cloud, and if I'm a uh, you know, government agency or even a school in, in, in British Columbia, you know, I'm flying this with my classroom of kids 
it by default is uploading all of this longitude and latitude and pictures and, and information up to the cloud. And so um, individuals, I guess, by what people are saying, sometimes don't seem to care about this. They should. Um, but as a business and as a government entity, you, you damn well should be, be aware that this is happening. And this is increasingly happening with, um, with devices that we're, we're implementing every day. Yeah, that's super interesting. It'll be interesting when we, if we go back on the road with the drone, um, we were sort of thinking about going up to British Columbia. So I'll be interested to see if you have a different experience on the screen or if the drone responds differently to crossing a border. Yeah, I'm going to be paying attention to the app a little bit more. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I keep learning about things in there. There's a wealth of of tools when it comes to the cameras, the battery, the exposures, the lighting um, that I'm still learning about, but at this this real time feed and and having it almost forced on you to a certain degree because there, there's the one time I I uh, just without thinking plugged in the drone in a hotel room or the drone the the iPad and it updated the app and then I went out and I was driving and I came across this really amazing the Deschutes River Canyon out in eastern Oregon and wanted to fly it but the the firmware between the RC controller and the app were out of sync and I couldn't get a good enough internet connection to update this and so um, you know, it'd be interesting to look at that that data gathering, that that capabilities of it as it changes on a geo basis, but then also um, on a time, you know, kind of update schedule and and this, you know, the web being real time and always keeping you up to date and pushing firmware updates. And when you know every piece of this device has uh, firmware from the battery to the camera to the actual flying components, um, what does that look like? So there's a lot of built-in sort of planned obsolescence within these devices as well. Uh, plan, yeah, railroading you down certain paths, I would, I would add. You know, certain business models, certain um, ways of thinking, certain, um, I think, governance. Once they, you know, um, corporations and, and federal agencies get a handle on how to uh, inflict, uh, you know, governance on, on citizens or consumers or workers um, who are flying fleets or driving fleets like Uber, stuff like that. Well, that's, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's the important takeaway because you can hear us talk about this and say, well, I don't have a drone. I don't want a drone. I don't care about a drone. But really we could say we could substitute for the word drone, we could substitute the word, the phrase internet connected device, right? And so, the Internet of Things, um, I mean, there's, there are going to be a bunch of objects, of physical objects, that, that start to take on these, that start to take on these, um, these properties, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's the whole API thing. APIs first started driving the web, um, web properties, affiliate programs. They started driving mobile phones, and then now they're driving, you know, um, basically every device, automobiles, uh, you know, to drones, to security systems, camera systems, all of this. So they all share these characteristics, and and that's why the, the kind of multi-way street that you can get information on your drone that make real-time decisions for you, either forced on you or here's here's educating you and you make your own decision to kill switches, you know, um, shut off all the cameras on all devices within, you know, a thousand feet of this institution, you know, or make sure that anything um, within a thousand feet of this institution's all data is routed to this place in the cloud. It doesn't go to Chinese servers. It will not, you know, so how does this work when you look at policing, when you look at, you know, that kind of stuff?
Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, these are the kinds of things that I wish, I wish, um, I wish people paid more attention to, you know. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm eager to go, like you said, go back on the road with the drone because this is a, a, I don't know, an avenue or a road that I didn't anticipate going down with the drones. I, I'm still very skeptical of the drone as a device and, 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 um, because of its, its military origins and, and how it's being used and then how it's viewed and, and with a drone in my hand, how I'm viewed, you know, as well as, you know, what is collecting data wise, what, you know, all of this, but, um, it's super fascinating as far as the, the doorways it's opening, but that's my world. I'm kind of back, um, but enjoying writing about really, um, interesting intersections like this, so... Um, so I, my world was, um, I don't know, my world was interrupted, um, greatly, immensely, uh, this week. I got a text from my little brother. I mean, I woke up to a text from my little brother very early Monday morning, um, that Seymour Papard had died in the middle of the night. Um, and as you know, uh, Seymour's work is, I mean, I think really foundational to the work that I do. Um, and so I think it's, it's definitely something that's ha- sort of hung over me all, all week long. I spent the week I I reread I reread, Mindstorms and I reread the Children's Machine and I also read, for the first time, um, Ursula Franklin's book. She passed away a couple of weeks ago. She was a Canadian uh, physicist. Um, her book, The Real World of Technology, and I've just been you know struck by. Um, I mean, several things. I think that, you know, Ursula Franklin's vision of technology was sort of how do we get away from, you know, how do we get away from the sort of really prescriptive, the sort of prescriptive technologies that are coinciding and creating a culture of compliance. Um, you know, she she talks about the ways in which, you know, in our in our day-to-day lives, it's not just the matter of the, milita- the sort of militaristic history, and it's not just the Industrial Revolution and the history of machines that way, but it's really at a deeply, uh, a sort of a, a deeply personal day-to-day level for all of us are having our, our lives sort of overpowered um, by a kind of, a kind of cultural logic, a kind of cultural logic of of technology that I think that she talks about how it dis, how it destroys reciprocity, how it's sort of leading to environmental destruction, how it's sort of making us severed from community, severed from nature, um, severed from one another. So I just have had a like the sense of profound loss um, that for me personally, but I think for all of us really, is that these two great visionaries for thinking about different ways of technology, different ways of being in and with and around and against even technology, that that we've lost them. We've lost them both this year. Um, and losing Seymour um, is is just is devastating. So you, you just glossed over what he's contributed you said mind storms you said so can you give a quick for the 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 people listening that might not know what he what we're what we owe to Seymour so (laughs) you know our friend Gary Steger has this great TED talk that he gave he he gave in which he describes Seymour as sort of the creator of everything good in education which is a bit of hyperbole but it's I mean I think that uh you know Seymour uh Seymour co-developed Logo the children's programming language logo, the first 
programming language for children. He co-founded the MIT Media Lab. He was an early, he was one of the early earliest professors involved with the artificial intelligence, working with Marvin Minsky, who also passed away this year at MIT. Um, his theory of constructionism, I think, is one that just deeply resonates with me. Um, which built on Jean Piaget's notion of constructivism, but really this no idea of learning by doing, learning by making, um, but also, you know, thinking, um, having computers be these sort of thinking objects, objects to think with. Um, and his, you know, I think it's, it's funny that as I've seen sort of the sort of rise of the maker movement and the push in the last couple of years for, quote, everyone should learn to code, the more and more this stuff gets pushed, which sounds a lot like some of the things Seymour would talk about, sort of the less and less people actually know Seymour, say Seymour's name, the less they read his work. Um, and I, I, I wrote today in my newsletter that I worry that with his passing that a lot of folks are going to try to sort of wrap themselves up in a legacy to which they've paid very little attention and don't actually care. I actually have a couple of um, passages. Well, here's the one I, I tweeted this out. This is the one, I think, that's got asterisks in, by it in my copy, my well-read copy of Mindstorms. In most contemporary educational situations where children come into contact with computers, the computer is used to put children through their paces, to provide exercises of an appropriate level of difficulty, to provide feedback, and to dispense information. The computer programming the child. In the logo environment, the relationship is reversed. The child, even at preschool ages, is in control. The child programs the computer. And in teaching the computer how to think, children embark on an exploration about how they themselves think. The experience can be heady. Thinking about thinking turns the child into an epistemologist, an experience not even shared by most adults. So, you know, Seymour's work on programming wasn't everyone should learn to code because programming is a is a high-tech skill that is valued by employers. And in fact, in his other book, The Children's Machine, he really takes, he really sort of deconstructs this whole, that part of that whole push. I guess I should add that Mindstorms was written in 1980. 1980. I mean, that was before, that was, I think, around the time when I first um, had the opportunity to, to program with Logo, right? And his other book, The Children's Machine, was written in 1993. He was so far ahead of his time. But I think recognizing the way in which when the computer came in contact with school, that all of this sort of subversive potential for the ways in which children might actually sort of become the subjects of their learning through these powerful thinking machines, that instead school um, is going to really sort of takes take away all of that subversive power and that children as that passage says that children will be children will have computers sort of computers will do things to children right that there will be flashcards and learning analytics and control and as Ursula um, Franklin's work says control and compliance and I think that that is mostly what we see ed tech today is behaviorist control and compliance but even the the sort of gestures that some companies make towards kids learning to code, 
deeply misunderstand Seymour's work, which again is not, I see headlines all the time. This robot will teach your kid to code. This program will teach your kid to code. And Seymour was clear, very clear, that in his vision of education technology, children were not the objects of the sentence, right? They were not something done to them. The children teach the robot to think, not the robot teaches the children to code. It's a really significant difference. And it's missing from so many of the companies now that really want to say that they are sort of heirs, heirs to Seymour's work. You know, um, he lived... He lived in Blue Hill, Maine, near where Fred, my little brother, lives. And um, I think Fred would stop by quite frequently to visit him. And I got to visit him a couple of times. Um, and Fred asked him once, asked Seymour, I love the story. He asked Seymour, what language should Fred, what's the best language to learn to program? Um, and Seymour laughed. And his answer is perfect. His answer was English. And I think that that's, and like if, to think about like, that's what Seymour meant is that in, if you've ever, I don't know if people are familiar with Logo, but Logo was English and you taught that you taught, it was English and sort of geometry, right? Um, and you taught the, the turtle how to turn and move, but then knowing how to turn and move, you taught the, the turtle new words, and you taught them words in English. You didn't teach them Python, and the, and the logo wasn't about teaching you lisp, right? It was about you teaching the robot English, and English is absolutely, I mean, and, and I don't mean English um, in the sort of imperialist sense. I mean your native language, um, your native language, the language of humans, is the language, is the best language. And that we've developed all of this other sort of obfuscation around it is, I think, really um, highlights just, you know, how, how far we've come away, away from his vision. Well, us, us owning and driving the technology versus the technology owning and driving us I mean, I think that that struggle that you point out going on in the classroom and going on in ed tech and being central to your world, I mean, that's, I think, the core to both of ours work on the Internet. And and sadly, that's what, you know, I would say our whole efforts around Reclaim are is, is, is the technology is owning us. It's controlling us. It's directing us. It's not about us telling the Facebook timeline or the Twitter algorithm timeline or the Instagram what we want and what we're interested in. It's about us telling us what we want and what advertisers want us to see and the people. And this just echoes throughout every every vein of of the technology space and where technology is, you know, being crammed down our throats, whether personally or as part of our business operations. Um, and it's driving us and, and we're not, we're, we're, we're quickly drowning and, and losing that level, any levels of control within there. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I think that I, there's another passage. I can't seem to find it right now. There's a great, there's a great passage in the children's machine. I'm pretty sure it's in the children's machine where he talks about sort of this when the light bulb 
the light bulb came on for him when he was introduced himself to the computer in the 1960s. And, and like this, again, is partially what's so truly radical about Seymour is that he had these visions for a personal computer when computers were still these mammoth mainframes. And he had a vision for children having their own personal computer. I mean, he, Alan Kay's, you know, Alan Kay's early work was definitely, I, I mean, Alan Kay would say after he, after he met with Seymour, this vision for um, a personal computer and a personal computer in the hands of, of, of children as their own, not just personal computer, not just because it's a portable computer, but a personal computer that is yours, you programmable by you, containing the things that matter to you. Um, which again, we've sort of moved away from personal computer, meaning that because everything's locked down and proprietary and it's not really yours. You've just sort of paid for a license to sort of, you know, borrow a copy of your operating system. Subscription to everything that's important to you. Right, right. But there's this great, there's this great passage and when, and when sort of the light bulb comes on for Seymour and he talks about this position and, and MIT in the 1960s, you know, again, one of the, a, an institution that, a, that, like the drone, lives at this really precarious overlap between science, technology, business, and militarization. And that Seymour makes it clear that his work was as a Robin Hood and that he was going to steal steal the technology from the lab steal the technology from the lab and give it to the children and Seymour's work is oh, has always been about power and, and subversiveness in a really important way and in, again in ways that are glossed over by ed tech and it's sort of because ed tech has become so closely associated with compliance and control. EdTech doesn't like to tell stories of, of, of that sort of subversiveness. But, you know, Seymour's work was, was deeply, was, I think, very political. Seymour himself was, um, was very political. And Seymour was, you know, his work was explicitly anti-racist and explicitly anti-authoritarian, again, in ways that EdTech doesn't want to talk about because EdTech wants it to be about shiny consumer objects, about power control and compliance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, and and it sounds like, I mean, he really saw what technology, the, 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 the inverse of this could be, in, put in the wrong hands. I mean, he he he. Uh, you tell stories of him coming from South Africa, and 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 fleeing that that world, and then it really driving a lot of you know how he saw technology and how he he created he he focused on these subversive currents and how important it is. And I think you know for us to re- retain control, I think that message has to continue with. You know, I mean, this is what Reclaim is for me. This is what API Evangelist. I know people love to think I'm like, hey, yay, cheerleader for the API space. But, you know, my view of what APIs are good for as far as cracking open um, these algorithms um, that are increasingly controlling our lives in every step. Um, you know, my my version of that is is those should be, you know, open and accessible. We sh- I should be able to say, no, I don't want the Twitter algorithm to drive my feed. I don't want the Facebook algorithm to drive my feed. Or if it is, what are those variables? How are they influenced? It? You know, and give me some knobs and levers that I can pull or a command line or give me some visual tooling or some plain English way of telling it, hey, that's not actually interesting to me, or please stop that, or, you know, I'm not going to subscribe to that. 
Right. I mean, and it's, you know, I think that the, I think that this is what's there, you know, there are many of, there are not many, there are several figures like Ursula Franklin, like Seymour Papert, who I think had a very different and saw were visionaries in terms of not just the potential of technology, but the real dangers of technologies heading down certain, certain paths. And um, I think all I can hope for in the work that I do, again, so deeply indebted to Seymour, so grateful, so, so very grateful for his work, is to make sure that my life's work draws on that and that finding, finding ways to build what Ursula Franklin calls in her book, redemptive technologies, right? So instead of prescriptive technologies, instead of technologies of control, we have to find these ways of, not, not, I'm not talking about utopian tech, I'm talking about redemptive and that things that are intermediaries that fix what has become just incredibly fucked up. Well... Um, I guess that's why we're doing this podcast is continue that, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, and yeah, until next week, I guess. <laughs>